Well, I do hope God richly blesses you as you are back here this evening. I know it's been a few late nights already, and you have a couple more coming. And uh, I'm very much enjoying Minnesota, and I know this is just normal stuff for you, but I was driving around this morning noticing the interesting ways you farm the soil, the sun, and the wind, and how all that works, and it's interesting because you don't do some of that in Virginia. So it intrigues me. I don't know if uh, this congregation in rural Minnesota grapples with the same things that a church in rural Virginia would face or in Pennsylvania, but I'm going to have to assume that probably all of us at some level struggle with much many of the same things. And so uh, I've chosen to share something this evening that might be a little different in tone, but I believe it's for the sake of awareness and warning as we grapple with the things around us and as we deal with the things the world throws at us. But in my pocket... I carry a cell phone. This is a company phone. I didn't buy this one, but they permitted me to use it for a while. It's an amazing tool. It is a uh, communication device. I can call pretty much anyone in the whole world if they have one. It's an organizer. It's a secretary. It's a calendar. It's a calculator. It's a library. It's a GPS. I'm glad for a GPS these days up here in Minnesota. I can get instant news from Guatemala, from Israel, from Roanoke, wherever I want it. I can find it. I can buy things. I can buy anything from meat grinders to meat tenderizers to bee equipment to airline tickets from my wherever I'm at. Uh, I can listen to thousands of stories on here, millions of songs if I choose to. Um, it's a television. It's a radio. It's a lot of things. This thing can be made into a Bible or pornography magazine. It can be a Wall Street Journal. It can pretty much be whatever I want it to be because it has that kind of capacity. And you might have one. There's one up here, I guess. This one. Somebody's listening to it. And because it's so powerful, it just has a way of enhancing every interest and enabling every effort in any direction a person wants to use it and take it. It's the world in my pocket. That's what it is. It's the world in my pocket. And I'm not speaking about smartphones tonight. That's not the point of the message or technology, but rather what has come to represent and enable and and why we as God's people must be very discerning as we look at things like this and aware of the world we live in and so on. And uh, I'd like to point out a couple of verses that Peter spoke in Acts chapter 2. He was giving here his first message, and it was a message that 3,000 people responded to It was a message of repentance and of Jesus Christ and a message of new life. And this is what he said in Acts 2, 38 and 39. Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. So this is a timeless statement. He's saying here that, That salvation is a timeless gift. It was true then, it's true now. The promise of the Holy Spirit and newness of life is a timeless offer to those that enter it and accept it, even in 2020. But the verse I want to focus on is the next one. I would suggest that if verses 38 and 39 are timeless and true, then what he said in verse 40 is equally true and timeless. He said, and with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Save yourselves from this untoward generation. 
And so from the very birth of the church, there's a salvation is drawing a distinction, a line between. It was a separating of, of ways. And the same salvation that means remission of sins and gift of the Holy Ghost and promise of eternal life, it also means salvation from the untoward or crooked or perverse or warped generation around you. Why did Peter throw that in? What did he mean by that? I think he meant the generation you live among is going down. Get away from it. It's a step away. It's like it's like the friends of Korah backed up from him when he was going to go under. It was like lifeboats going as fast as they could away from the Titanic because the Titanic is going under. And the generation around us is a great entanglement. We need to extricate ourselves. Don't let it trip us. The elements that define the the society around us stand today under the wrath of God, the judgment of God. And we don't want to be branded by that. We want to be distinct and unique from that. And so from the very birth of the church, Peter is uniting two concepts, salvation by remission of sins and salvation from the perversion of our generation all in one package. And whenever there's a line drawn, it's up to us to be on the right side of that line. Back in the ending days of World War II, when the battle was coming to a close, and the U.S. and Russia and England had all sat down and sort of carved up Europe, and when the curtain comes down, this is where things are going to stand, and somehow the Germans knew about that. And when they knew that they had 24 hours, there was a stream of German soldiers toward the American lines, because there was a line there, and they could be on this side, they could surrender to the Americans, this side, they had to surrender to the Russians, and everybody didn't want to do that. And so they, they for all they were worth, should get across the line. When the Berlin Wall went up, when the, the wall in Germany went up, some people that belonged on this side found themselves caught on the other side because if they had only known, if they only knew what was happening, they would have made sure they had been on the other side. So the question we need to answer is, what does it mean today to save ourselves from this untoward generation? And there's much at stake here. The heart of our young people, the identity of our church, the influences we allow are all part of this picture. And uh, and it's both a reminder and a warning. And what are we doing with this untoward generation? And how does that affect the outworking of our Christian life in a practical, everyday way? I'd like to use some scripture this evening to start off to... Uh, to, just to help us visualize again the difference. I don't have a whiteboard up here. Uh, you can either make a list or in your mind make the distinctions. There's several verses that point out the need for a distinction here. And too many people who claim to believe in Jesus believe in the future distinction, that there's one day a great separation coming between those which are his and those which are not his. And some people feel like that's the distinction, that's the separation. But too many people view a present separation distinction as unnecessary, hypothetical, impractical, and so we just sort of live all mixed up with no real clarity, and God will sort us all out in the end. Let's read a few of these verses. Colossians 1. We already made one distinction, the untoward generation and the saved generation. That's one big distinction. Colossians 1, 12 and 13 says, "...giving thanks unto the Father." which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. So the believer experiences both deliverance and translation. 
That just mean, doesn't mean from English to Spanish. That means from here to here. It's like you moved. You used to be here, now you're here. You used to be in darkness, now you're in light. It's your, it's a new way of living. It's a new place to identify with. There's a breaking of the shackles and removing of sin's authority. In Romans 12, verse 2, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Here's another uh, contrast, the conformed and the transformed. Uh, the conformed to society and the transformed into the image of, of Jesus Christ. This is a key verse in this, this whole concept. There's a, this is where victory begins. This is where the understanding is enlightened and where boundaries are drawn. And uh, we need to be careful we feed our minds because that very much in turn influences the decisions that we make about what we face and what we're doing. Let's go yet to 2 Corinthians 6. Verses 14 through 17. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? There's one, righteousness, unrighteousness. What communion hath light with darkness? There's another pair. What concord hath Christ with Belial? There's another pair. Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? That word will come up again. For ye are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord God Almighty. I'll let most of that just speak for itself. It's a very clear verse. We study it. We look at it. But if you're looking for pairs of... How to describe the two sides, how to describe the kingdom of this and the kingdom of that. You find many of them there. You can list and see the difference and the distinction and the separation between. James 4, 4 says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that the friendship with, of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Have you ever had the experience of trying to be good friends with two people that hate each other? Uh, I can't really remember an experience like that myself, but I think it would be very difficult. Back when Israel became reestablished as a state in 1948, the Arabs were much against what was happening, and the United States tried to toe a very fine line in trying to reach out to both, support both, be friends to both. But every time they make a move in Israel's direction, the Arabs would raise up in suspicion and like... You can't do that. And then every time they make a move this way, the Israelis would react the same way. It's virtually impossible to be equal on equally good terms with enemies. And here James is saying the same thing. Uh, it's impossible to reconcile and be friends with sworn enemies. If you remember the story of uh, the rich man and Lazarus. When Abraham was describing the distance between where the rich man was at and where Lazarus was at, he said this, Beside all this, that between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. And so, there was a slight difference in life, rich and poor, inside, outside, healthy, sickly, rich man, beggar. But in death, that this distinction became 
huge. It became a gulf that no one could pass over. And I believe today there's small differences in direction of identity, of of values and focus. It might seem slight to some people looking on, but the lines that Jesus wants us to recognize in life turn into a gulf that cannot be passed over in death. Today there's still a crossing. We can choose things. We can commit to things. But when that when the curtain comes down, we will stay on the side we were found, and that's where we'll ever forever be. One more yet in Revelation 18. Revelation 18 is the destruction of the great Babylon, and whatever you feel that that means, it could be uh, the world, the fallen culture that we live in. Um, but there's this great voice from heaven that says, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. The voice is calling to the church and saying, Come out of her, not because... The people to whom he is calling has lived in sin, but if they don't get out, they will sin and then will partake of the plagues that are coming. And so he's calling there for a distinction. Now, that's the scripture backing I want to give for what I'd like to say. And I'm not a sociologist. I'm not geared, not studied up on uh, the correct terms I'm going to be using this evening. I have a brief, at least, understanding. But every people group and every nation around the world has something we call culture. It is their worldview, their beliefs, the way they understand life, the way they interact, their history and language and so on. Somebody called E.B. Tyler, I don't know who this was, but said, culture is that complex whole which includes knowledge, belief, art, morals, law, custom, and any other capabilities and habits acquired by man as a member of society. That's culture. That's a lot. So culture includes many, many things. Now, we're Americans, uh, even though you're from Minnesota and I'm from Virginia, we're Americans. We go to school, we learn American history. We tend to identify with that. We read about the Revolutionary War and we read about the early presidents and the Barbary Wars and the new government and the Western expansion and all the little hiccups the nation encountered as it went forward. And we, we, in a certain way, at least identify with that because those things came along and affected us because we live here. If you visit Jamestown or Plymouth, you might feel some affinity for the struggles and the difficulties that people went through when they first landed. We read about World War I, World War II, and even though we would look at things that happened and would say, I would never be part of that and I can't agree with everything that was done, yet we would have to admit that we somehow, in a basic level, tend to be sympathetic toward the Allied cause, not the Germans, because we're Americans. We tend to have that that bias because... Uh, that's what we've read. That's what we've taught. We're Americans. We speak English. And somehow our, effect, our history has affected us. We speak English. We know of America's famous places and famous heroes. We observe Western holidays, Fourth of July, New Year's Day on January 1st, not some other day, uh, Thanksgiving. We wear shirt and pants and shoes, not turbans and robes or loincloths. We dress like Westerners dress. We appreciate apple pie and hamburgers and mashed potato and gravy because that's who we are. We take Saturday and Sunday off. So this has come about, I guess, because we've had 240-some years of, of at least shared history. Now, I know our history and our heritage has a little different stream to it, but 
we've sort of integrated and we've sort of become at least knowledgeable enough to feel affinity for the culture we live in. How should we feel about that? Should we accept it? Should we reject it? Are we okay with that or aren't we? I'm, sometimes we grapple with that. But let's change the context a little bit. And let's say you're sending a missionary to Peru. So here's a couple. Let's send them to Peru. How important is culture then if they go to Peru? How important is it for them to learn Quechua or learn Spanish? How important is them to eat chunya or uh, potatoes or whatever they eat down there? How important is that? Or to drink chicha. <laughs> it's their local drink they make with barley and other things or tea. You know, uh, some missionaries go to the field thinking, I don't care how they think. I know how I think. And I think better than they do anyway, so we'll just teach them our way. One missionary said, man, if we could just teach all these people English, it would make it so much easier. I guess it would, but that's not the point. And so when people go barging in with no conscience of culture or values there, it's going to be very difficult to portray the gospel in a way they're going to understand and accept. How do you relate? How do you not offend? How do you build confidence? How do you share the gospel in a way that is understandable and palatable? And so, culture takes a different look. We, we think it's a good thing. We try to adapt to it as much as possible. So I'm saying that culture is not a bad thing. Culture is something to respect, appreciate. It's not inherently evil. There's much to enjoy and uh, appreciate. It might depend a lot on what shaped it and formed it. But by saying that, I'm not saying that all of culture is homogenous either. It's not all the same. From coast to coast, American culture is not the same. In fact, years ago, you had something called counterculture. And that was some movements within society that were trying to go directly against the main, the whole, the uh, the culture. We had the culture saying, well, short hair is good for men. And some guys saying, well, okay, I'll wear long hair. Um, society has certain norms and standards about sexuality and behavior. And so there was like an uprising saying, Whatever you say I should do, I won't do it. Other way around. So that that movement, the hippie movement, the rock music movement, the, all these things that happen. Then you have subcultures. There's other smaller groups within cultures that uh, people identify with, like Southern culture. If you've ever been to the South, you get a picture of what Southern culture is. You eat grits, you eat hush puppies, and you're friendly, and you talk to people, and you have a certain accent. There are survivalists. And this is a subculture by itself, the uh, the preppers, the ones that are getting ready at the end of the world. And back in 2000, Y2K, this is a big thing, and probably right now is a big thing. People are trying to survive. In fact, right there in our area, there was a group that barricaded themselves up. They had ammunition and food, and they're ready to just defend it against anybody coming out of the cities to swarm the area looking for This is a culture. It's a little subculture, survivalists. There's Mennonites. Uh, the Mennonites are sort of a subculture, and I think they're nationally recognized as a subculture. And uh, rightly or wrongly, but there's certain things that go along with that, and there's many others. But in time, both the subcultures and the counterculture feed into the larger thing, the whole thing. Sort of like putting ginger in the cookies or rosemary in the soup, or sort of like pasture runoff in the creek, and after a while it sort of affects the flavor, it changes the whole 
And some of those contributions are good. The fact that Chinatown added fried rice and chow mein, I think that's a good thing. I enjoy Chinese food. But the fact that the music movement of the 70s has largely taken over and influenced most of Christian music today, I don't think is a good thing. I think there's some negatives about that. But the one I'm probably most concerned about, and I'd like to grapple with a little, is pop culture, popular culture. And this is basically built around the approval of the masses, built around the uh, tastes and appetites of people. And so here's a technical definition if you want to track through this. Oxford says this, it's music, television, books that are popular and enjoyed by ordinary people rather than the experts of very educated people, just normal people. And by extension, modern popular culture transmitted via the mass media and aimed particularly at younger people. That's one definition of popular culture. And this is the function, this is the stated function that popular culture serves to do. It's to bind together large masses of diverse individuals into a unified cultural identity. That is uh, the stated purpose of pop culture. So pop culture has many elements. It has toys. There are certain video games, action figures, fidget spinners. Did you ever hear of fidget spinners? That was a craze a couple of years ago. Uh, things that just sweep through the national awareness very quickly become very popular. There's food. There's McDonald's. There's Coke. There's pizza. It's just sort of a well-known coast-to-coast phenomenon. Entertainment. There's TV shows and videos and YouTube channels that that quickly influence and affect most of people just know who they are. Most listen to, there's music, the uh, most listened to music. There's icons, both the fictional and the real. There's humor and literature and sports and clothing styles. All this feeds into and is part of what pop- popular culture is. And altogether, this gives people in culture sort of a common ground. I was on an airplane one time and sitting pretty close to us total stranger, and here comes another total stranger, and they sit down together, and within two minutes, they're having an animated conversation about sports, about Penn State, about who won, who lost. Both of them knew their subject matter very well because both are plugged in to that arena of knowledge. And so it gives people a sort of a base, a connection, and that's uh, one thing it, it does. Now, everything out there comes from somewhere, and I've I guess there's a couple of uh, theories about where pop culture comes from. The first one is sort of a conspiratorial kind of theory. And this says that there's a group of elites out there somewhere creating and promoting this to be able to control people. That's what some people believe. In some cases, there might be a grain of truth in it because when one person is so influential, whatever he says and whatever he wears and whatever he suggests instantly becomes well-known across everybody that follows him. And he can decide the national conversation, influence the national consciousness, and promote certain things. That's one theory, that there's people back there trying to play society like a piano, make them do what they want them to do. But here's another theory, and this is probably more, in my view, more accurate, that all the people put together create this by their appetite and by their wallet. And... uh, Pop music only becomes popular because people want it enough to pay for it. And that's what brings it to the top. Uh, The top movies only get to be to the top because enough people watch them. And that's what gives it the influence. That's what gives it the popularity. 
food, clothes, toys, all these things gain national awareness because enough people jump on and like it. And that's what brings it to the top. And there's a constant filtering of public opinion. And there's a constant yes to this, yes to that, no to the other to create some movement. And that in turn influences the process. Now, both of these theories, as a Christian, both of these theories make me very concerned. Number one, I don't want to be personally pushed in a certain direction because somebody back there wants me to do it. I would resist that. And number two, I don't want to be controlled and influenced by the appetites of 300 million unsaved people. I don't want to do that either. I don't want to be part of that. Especially if pop culture serves to bind together large masses of people into a unified cultural identity. And if if that's what's happening, then I, I don't want to be part of that necessarily. So if culture is built by history and common experience and time, pop culture is built around appetite and demand, usually measured by how well it sells. That's very much a part of this thing. So when God said, come out from among them, be separate, and when Peter said, save yourselves in this untoward generation, and when James said, whosoever will be a friend of the world is an enemy with God, I'm forced to think that the elements of culture that delight the masses of unconverted people should be pretty high on the list of suspect, at least. And I think we should look at that with a lot of discernment. Now, not all of popular culture is intrinsically bad. Uh, McDonald's, anybody eaten there in the last month? <laughs> um, McDonald's serves 69 million people a day. That's 1% of the world's population eats at McDonald's. That's a pretty big number. That doesn't mean that they're... Uh, McBurger is sinful, unless it's too many of them. Just because there was millions of fidget spinners being cranked out and everybody wanted one doesn't necessarily make it a sin. It's just a little gadget you can play with, give to your children or whatever. But uh, we read we read Ephesians last night. I'd like to invite you to turn back to Ephesians this evening to look at that in the context of, how, of, of what we're looking at. Ephesians chapter 2 again. I know we read it last night, and I'm going to refresh your memory by reading this again. I'd like us to understand this as part of the underlying DNA of, of pop culture's very existence. Ye hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So again, this is in time past. So fortunately, hopefully we are not part of this picture, but this is what it looks like. Paul equates two things here. I believe he's equating the course of this world with the prince of the power of the air. And if we obeyed one, we've obeyed the other. If we've patterned life after one, we're following the dictates of the other. If we have given our attention and our minds to one, we're giving our ears and eyes to the other. And uh, if it's true that the appetites of millions of unsaved people influences the direction of pop culture, then it's also true that Satan's grip on millions of appetites 
makes him the God of this world and sort of with his hand on the rudder of where this goes. I believe that the prince of the power of the air operates in both the producer and the consumer of what's being put out for this consumption out there. The consumer is driven by his unregenerate appetites. It drives him to do things that feel good, sound good, uh, make him feel better, whatever. That's what filters what goes to the top. The producer is driven by several things. So let's say you're a movie producer or a music producer. What's your goal? Well, your goal is to sell as much of it as you can. So you're going to be thinking, what can I produce that's going to satisfy the appetites of the most people possible? Which very much makes me concerned about these crossover artists that like to get to the top of the Christian charts and the top of the secular charts. It's the same motivation. Try to reach as many people as possible because there's there's an economic advantage there and there's popularity there. So that's the first concern. So what can I sell the most of? Where is he going to reach for his influence and his... Uh, he's going to reach back into his own experience. If he's an unsaved person, used to living a sinful life, he's going to reach back into that experience to produce for people out there. that He knows about that. And it's scarily frequent. And besides all the immorality and the... Uh, anti-God and the everything else, the humanistic points of view, but scarily frequently the occult sources that are fed into this stuff that help form and shape what's being put out should make us very concerned about it. So that's one. The prince of the power of the air is at work. Let's, the second one here in, in Ephesians 2.2 the uh, three, I guess it is, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And so I believe a lot of this is geared to this one thing, to produce something to gratify the flesh and the lust of unsaved people, millions of them. Now, it's good here to make a distinction because uh, things like cars are part of the popular culture, Corel plates, uh, durable blue jeans, um, canned soup, all these things are just part of what's being produced because they're, they're good, they're durable, they're useful. And we need to make a big distinction because, uh, because some of these things serve humanity well, but others are, are not geared toward that at all. Um, pop culture producing things that make life sensual and enjoyable in that regard. So which we approach this with tremendous hesitation. We look at it with much care because much of what's being put out is geared especially to inflame passion and generate emotion and make people feed on it for those reasons. And they know how to gear their tools toward uh, attracting the attention of many, many people. You know, media is a, is a vehicle for all of this. Media is the vehicle for the message. Media comes in different forms. You have paper and books. You can read that. I would suggest that not all media is created equal. And so there's books the reader is allowed to read, form his own opinions, do his own interpretation and judgment. It's much less less emotional. Uh, music is highly emotional. And probably the media of, of movies and videos especially bring a viewer into the experience so closely and intimately that it's almost 
it makes an impact almost as if you lived it yourself. And that's why that, to me, is probably the most dangerous of the media types because of the the ways that it's being influenced. It's being interpreted for you and grabbing a person's uh, mind as it does. And we often discuss what's appropriate for a Christian to consume and what isn't. Where's the line drawn? Well, one question I think we should be asking is, who was this produced for and for what results? Uh, who's it produced for? Who's, who's the one that, that pays for this? And what, uh, what effect is a diet of this going to have on my life? The last thing it mentioned here is uh, fulfilling the desires of the mind. Now, the most deep-seated longing any human has is to fit, to belong, to feel part of something. And I've already mentioned that that's one thing that pop culture offers, a platform for people to come together and understand each other because they have these values and icons and touchstones and things that they can relate to. Uh, it's an identity. Now, hopefully the child of God finds it in his family, in his church. There's this connection, this belonging, this sense of fellowship and oneness. But the child of this world finds it in the culture and in the style and in the, uh, if you can achieve a certain look or if you can be conversant on certain topics and if you can mimic important people or belong to a certain group, that's what gives a sense of connection that the Christian doesn't need to be reaching into. And I believe here's where the believers sometimes are quite naive. When we as Christians play with the world's identifiers, it, it should be uh, re- repugnant to think that the world might mistake me for, a, for one of them. I guess a, no North American soldier would have ever wanted to be identified as a German soldier, unless he had a really special reason for doing that. No Israeli soldier would have wanted to be identified as an Egyptian soldier. A child of God should never want to be mistaken for a child of the world. There's a verse in Luke 16, 15. This is given here in the context of money. He said unto them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, for God knoweth your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. So he was speaking there about their love of money. But I think the principle covers many things. It might cover uh, money or movies or ideology or music or whatever it is that that people run after. And some elements of pop culture stand on their own value. There's things that serve humanity well. But the things that serve to unite and entertain and identify the fallen culture are the things that we need to be especially aware and concerned about. If the unsaved masses worship it, then God cannot help but hate it because of the idolatry that is associated with it. I'd like to pick on one example here this evening. I think it's a fairly safe example for northern Minnesota. Does anybody play soccer in northern Minnesota? Maybe some people do, but we play some in school. I know in Guatemala is a big thing. There's nothing wrong with the game. It requires a lot of skill and a lot of effort to both run and control the ball with your feet. But this is a sport that galvanizes nations it's loved passionately by millions. Every time a World Cup rolls around every four years, there is a, a mania about the World Cup. And there's much discussion. You can find this online, but is soccer a new religion? 
There's some discussion. It has its temples. It has its priests. It has people worshiping at its altars and paying lots of money to be part of this thing. It has devoted hearts. A soccer match back in 1969 sparked a war between Honduras and and, uh, El Salvador. There's already tensions, but there was a match between the two countries that was disputed, and then a second match that was disputed, and then war broke out, and I think 70,000 people were killed in that war before it was uh, broken off. A hundred-hour war. Now, it wasn't all about soccer, but that's the passion involved in soccer. Now, the world population is 7 billion people, more or less. 31% of these people claim to be Christians. 31%. 23% claim to be Muslims. But in 2018, 3.5 billion people watched the World Cup. That is one half of all the population in the world watched the World Cup. Now, what event in all of history has engaged and, and focused the attention of one half of the world's population all at one time on one event? That's huge. Now, soccer sin, if I was younger, I'd play it. I'd enjoy kicking a ball around. But should anything that commands the attention of 50, 50% of the world's population with such devotion and ardor be suspect at least? I think it should. I really think it should. I know that Revelation 18.4 applies to much more than soccer when it said, come out from among them, be separate. Don't partake of her sins, so you don't partake in her plagues. Come out, come away, don't partake of the sins. You haven't, but you, you will, and you'll participate in judgment if we don't. Now, one more observation here before I close. Popular culture as it exists today could not exist the way it does without media. Uh, you know, sensations go viral overnight. Uh, the popular people are so close through Twitter or whatever. They can, you can sign up and you can get their instant little messages, what they had for lunch, where they are right now, and it almost feels personal because they sent you this message. And, uh, fashion sweeps through. And the only reason it works is because everybody's connected. And these things just whoosh, sweep out so quickly. And so it's, it's influencing a lot of people. I was in Pennsylvania last week, and on the way to church one, I think it was Saturday evening, we saw a flock of starlings up there. Did you ever see a flock of starlings fly together? It's a whole mob of hundreds and hundreds of birds, and they're a circle, and so they swoop, and they all of a sudden reverse and go the other way, and they go up and down and land in a tree and take off again all at once, and they're just like in formation. It's almost like there's a mind controlling them. It's beautiful to watch. But pop culture is a little bit like that. People seem to want the same thing. They'll listen to the same voices. They're, they're quickly swerving in new directions. They're being influenced by new ideas. And, and they act like starlings because they're all, I don't know, somehow connected by the same thing. And I know that culture has always had a way of communicating with itself. We had newspapers, and so people read newspapers. We had radio after a while. People listened to the radio. Uh, television after a while. Internet, and each new method is more powerful, more compelling, and more immediate, and more gripping. It just, the nature of this has gotten much more hard to ignore and much more easily drawn into. And I guess we just need to remind ourselves, when we choose to bring Internet inside, we have to recognize that this gives me immediate access to the 
the operation of the prince of the power of the air and the things that he's doing in the world and in society and the things that are being promoted and pushed. I know for years we resisted the influence of culture by saying some people said no to radio. Some people said yes to radio, drew the line on television. But when the Internet came along, we pretty much opened ourselves to that, though it includes radio, Internet, newspapers, and everything else. It's all there. But because it is a tool as well, we've said, well, we'll try to control this for the sake of that. And so it's a mixed bag. We need to recognize it as such and, and be careful with that as such. And if we've chosen to do that, we need to be keeping a hand on the spigot. Somebody said a test of a sound mind is to put a person into a, a room with a faucet turned wide open, a sink flow overflowing with a mop in a bucket, and tell them to clean it up. And you know if they start mopping the floor while the faucet is still running, uh, they're not thinking straight. We turn the faucet off first and then get to work. Maybe that's a sign of a sound mind. Well, sometimes our lives are a mess. Sometimes our youth groups are a mess. Sometimes our churches are a mess. Sometimes I wonder if the influences that we inadvertently allow contribute to the mess. And if we would learn to turn back the spigot or turn off the spigot in a personal way. I think we need to look at this very personally because this comes close to home sometimes, and clean things up. We need God's help in this. Discerning eyes, decisive choices, wise handling of of these things. And uh, I don't think we should be blind about them. I think God's vision for his people is always that there'd be a light in the dark, a separate thing, a, a invitation for the world to come to the Lord. We're like the keepers of the gate between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And we're there inviting people in. But let's not compromise what's out there because that ruins what we have to offer. Sometimes in the name of being relevant, we lose our very relevancy. And let's not let that happen. God bless you tonight. I just want to give you those things to think about. I would like to invite us to stand together. May we have a word of prayer and then our song leader can lead us in a verse of song to uh, to conclude the, the time this evening. Let's stand. Our Father in heaven, you've meant to leave us in this world and not take us out of this world, but do keep us from the evil of this world, Lord, and help us as we filter what comes at us through your wisdom and through the fine screen of of holiness and of Jesus' call on our life to make wise choices for ourselves and for our families and for our churches. And keep us from the evil, Lord, and help us to walk in righteousness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.